In John chapter 16, beginning at verse 8, Jesus is speaking and he's referring, it says, and he, he's referring there to the Holy Spirit. He's been speaking about the fact that he, Jesus, is going to leave, but he's going to give a helper who's called the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, he says, and he, when he comes, will convict the world, excuse me, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Let me read that again. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So it seems here obvious that one of the ministries and the works of the Holy Spirit as he is given from heaven down to earth after Jesus Christ is ascended back into heaven is that he's going to convict the world. You see that in verse 8. He will convict the world. Now, it's interesting that word convict has a broad meaning. It can, on the one hand, mean to prove guilty. A person can be convicted of a crime in a court. The evidence is clear. There's no question left. That person is convicted and it's declared that that person is guilty. But in that meaning of the word, there's no, it's, it's not making a comment on the person's heart response to that conviction. It's not saying anything about whether that person agrees with it or feels bad about it or anything. It's talking about this outward thing that God has, the court has convicted them. But then in English, the word convict has that other meaning though. It talks, it's meaning the awakening of the consciousness of guilt within the person. I feel convicted. I myself on the inside am experiencing a moving of my own heart. I'm understanding that I am guilty and I feel bad about that. I'm responding to that. That means, that's what the word convict means too. And the Greek word that's used in the Bible that's translated into English it has the very same two-pronged meaning. It means the same. This is, a good, this is a good translation to use that word convict because it goes both ways. And there's a sense that when God the Spirit comes, and he has come, and the gospel of Christ is preached around the world, and the gospel is preached and the message of Christ reaches individual people, that both of these senses of conviction are taking place. On the one hand, it's being proved and uh, that, that, that sin and righteousness and judgment are indeed what God says they are. But then in individual cases, people are themselves being awakened on the inside of them. Their consciousness, consciousness are being pricked and they themselves are feeling convicted about their own guilt. And the judgment to come. And God is working that. And the Spirit of God does that. God the Spirit works. And as he works, he works 
not only worldwide, but in individuals to bring conviction inside of our hearts about sin and righteousness and judgment. I want us this morning to look at the three subjects over which God the Spirit convicts. And I pray that you will feel the conviction in your own heart where you need it, God the Spirit knows. Three areas now over which conviction takes place. You look in verse 8 again, and it says that, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin. We spoke about that at quite some length last Sunday, but let's think about it again. You remember, I won't spend as much time on it now, but you remember we thought about the Ten Commandments. And, and we've seen that we've all broken them. Do you remember what they are again? Let's say it again. The first commandment, you shall have no other God before me. The second commandment is you shall not make for yourself an idol. The third, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The fourth, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Fifth, honor your father and your mother. Sixth, you shall not murder. Seventh, you shall not commit adultery. Eighth, you shall not steal. Ninth, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And tenth, you shall not covet. We saw last week when we, when we interacted with Jesus' words at the Sermon on the Mount, how he took those and explained them to their depth and how, how a person could be innocent of not actually doing one of these and yet guilty of, of it actually in his or her heart. That sin is so much so much more of a heart issue than perhaps we ever realized or wanted to realize. And we saw that we've, we've sinned. We've broken God's law, which means that we've, we, we have lived in a way that's contrary to the very nature of the one who created us and the one who's going to cause us to give an account of our life at the end of it. That's what sin is. And then a very convicting verse, James chapter 2. Let me read it for you, verse 10 and 11. The apostle James was writing, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point. That's interesting. He says, what what if you were able to keep nine out of the ten? Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Apparently, in God's word, he's trying to instruct us that the point isn't a grading scale. The point is, have you broken the law or have you not? Is the law giver, has he been, have you made an affront to him? Have you offended him? Not in a petty way. Perhaps offend is the wrong word, but the way we use it these days. But have you injured him? Have you, have you sinned against him? That, it's not how much sin have you done. It's have you sinned? Because of who God is and who we are. 
And the answer is yes, you have. We've broken God's law. But sin then involves more than just outward words and, or actions. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says there, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes here at the end. Wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Wow. So in the judgment, in the end, when Jesus comes, he's going to do two things at least. He says here he's going to bring to light the things that are hidden in the darkness. And he's going to disclose the motives of men's hearts. Let's think of both of those one by one. Hidden in the darkness. Things are hidden in the darkness. You do things when others aren't looking and no one sees. They're not seen by others. You think thoughts that no one knows you think. But God sees it all. And God knows it all. He actually can see in the dark. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 8. This is a long way back in the Old Testament. Page 993. I want you to see a story there. Ezekiel chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Page 993. Ezekiel is a wild book. It's got a lot in it that... that uh, isn't perhaps easily understood on the surface. And there's a, there's a lot of interesting things that happen in it. But we come now, Ezekiel is uh, the prophet of God. Look at verse 1. It says, It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. Now let me stop. So here is Ezekiel, the prophet the mouthpiece of God. And he's sitting there and the elders, these are the leaders of Israel. And in that setup, in that time, they were the spiritual as well as the, the uh, political leaders. These are the people who are supposed to have it together. These are the people who profess to have it together. That they are, they are religiously the leaders, the ones they all look up to. And here's the prophet, and he sits, and the elders in front of him, and he sees them. I wonder what he, I wonder what he saw. He saw how they were dressed. He saw their facial expressions. He heard what they were saying, none of which uh, incriminated them to any crime or any unholiness. I'm sure they were saying everything right. Everything looked right. Everything sounded right. And then God did something. You notice there at the end of the verse, it says, And the hand of the Lord my God, the Lord God, fell on me there. And then he says in verse 2, Then I looked, and behold, the likeness of the appearance of the man. He's, he's given a vision now. So God, while he's seated in front of these men who look right, God intervenes in Ezekiel's heart and mind, and all of a sudden he sees a vision of the Lord, and then he's snatched up 
had given this incredible experience, all the while it seems, if we read it right, physically he's still seated there in front of the men, but now he's somewhere else because of what God is doing with him. And he says, verse 5, look at verse 5. It says, and he said to me, son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north and behold, to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here so that I would be far from my sanctuary. So there was an idol set up that Ezekiel didn't know. He says, do you see that? God had seen it. But then he goes on, verse 7, Then he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. So I entered and looked, and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. This right, right within the temple. Standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. Then he said to me, son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images. For they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. God, God there in a miraculous way. While the elders who all looked right were sitting in front of him. Gave gave Ezekiel a vision and he could see for a moment. He could see the way God saw. And he saw that these men were not righteous. They were not right. They were not living right. They were, they were sinning in the dark. And God could see in the dark. And he showed their actions to the prophet. And so it will be in the end. When the Lord comes back, he will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. The walls that we've built up around ourselves will all be proven to have little holes in them that the prophet could dig through and see everything, everything, everything. And then that 1 Corinthians 4 verse says, not only will the things hidden in the darkness be seen, be brought to light, but the motives of men's hearts will be disclosed. The motives of men's hearts. Motives are huge. You see, it's not just what we do, but it's why we do it. It's not just what we say, it's why we say it. Why do we do the things that we do? This is the great omission in many people's thinking. When they begin to think about God calling us all to account for our lives, and and we begin to think about what we do. Well, I'm doing this and doing that, but God is looking at what we do, but he's also looking at motives. Why do we do what we do? Many people think that the good deeds that they do are going to be enough, or at least they hope so. It's going to be enough before God, but as if God is impressed with what we do. But this is an affront 
to God. It's an affront to his holiness and his majesty and his, the, just the superiority of his being. But our motives, if we, do, if we do good things but with selfish motives, what does that mean? And then there's one key motive that, that will maybe mix itself into our hearts. And, and this is the one that is so insidious. And that is that we hope that, that, that by doing this good thing that I'm doing, by making this sacrifice that I'm making, that maybe now... God will be pleased with me. Maybe now when I get to that judgment day, it'll be okay because I've done this good thing. I've done this and I, I didn't do that. As if we could, as if God was some sort of storekeeper and we're buying something from him. We know that we've messed up. So we're kind of in a bad way. And, and God God's the one who's going to judge me. And so I'm going to, I'm going to try to do some good things with a motive that when that day comes, I'll, I'll pay him off with the good things and it'll outweigh the bad and I'll get in. This is, this is insidious and it's evil. How demeaning of God that you're going to treat God like some storekeeper. Just get there to the last day and just pay him off with your good deeds as if that is actually how God is. You can't buy forgiveness with your actions and the motives of men's hearts on the day when the Lord comes back and judges will be disclosed, it says. They'll be disclosed. So sin is the breaking of his law. It's, the, it's an affront to him and who he is. It's more than just our actions. It's our, it's our motives. And it's, it's everything that's unseen by others as well as what is seen. But there's one, one sin which is the most damning of them all. And it's in our text in John 16. John 16 verse 8, 9 is that the Spirit of God will convict the world concerning sin, and then in verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. In addition to all the other ways in which we sin, when we reject Christ, that too is sin. In John chapter 5, in verse 39, Jesus is standing there with the people and he says this. And these again are the leaders, the religious leaders of the day. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, the scriptures, that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. Unbelief is the damning sin because it is the way that God offers you to return to him. You can't buy your forgiveness from God by racking up a a record of good things you did 
As we've said already, the very thought, the very motive that you would do that, you would do a good deed with that, is not adding anything to your record. It's making your record worse. The very thought that I might, might, this good deed, maybe that will help me in the judgment day, that itself is sin. It demeans God. And so now you have one way back to God, one way to have forgiveness. It's through Jesus Christ because he went to the cross and he paid the debt to God's justice that you couldn't pay. And then he stands resurrected from the dead and says, come to me, all of you who are weary, weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest for your souls. And you go to Jesus Christ and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You trust him and you receive forgiveness as a gift. You see, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will have forgiveness of sins and you'll have eternal life. But if you don't believe, that's the one way you could get back to God. And yet you've turned it away. And that sin, on top of all the others, damns you to eternal punishment. Do you sense within you, I ask, this work of the Spirit that we've started up to talk about in John 16? Do you sense within your own heart that perhaps God the Spirit is working conviction of sin in you? And it's not just that you agree in a general way that all of humankind has sinned against God and fallen short, but it's that you yourself are sensing that you have sinned. And you have fallen short. My friend, I just want to remind you that if, if your heart is troubled by your sin and your heart is stirred and been made uncomfortable by the things we've been talking about over the last few weeks, that, that God is not doing that in you to leave you where you are, but he is working in you conviction of your sin to bring you somewhere else, to bring you there. You are in... <clears throat> You are in the pathway. You're on the right path. Let God keep leading you to where he wants to bring you. But let's go on in this passage in John 16. <clears throat> Excuse me. In verse 8, he says, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I want to take these out of order and just go to the last one. Judgment now. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Spirit of God works in people to convict them of judgment, the judgment that is coming. Now, this judgment has to do with the, also the downfall of the evil one. It's mentioned there in verse 11. <clears throat> in John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus said, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That now that he's referring to is the cross. <clears throat> he was just getting ready to go to the cross to die on the cross. And at, in his death, he was defeating Satan because the great weapon that Satan has against you and me 
is our sin and the fact that God is going to punish us. Satan rides on that to work his will in our lives. And Jesus, by taking it away, Hebrews chapter 2 speaks of this. He takes that weapon out of Satan's hand and renders him powerless. He defeats Satan at the cross. But then the judgment, see, of Satan, which began there, ends later in Revelation 20.10. It says, and when the devil that deceived them, deceived all of us, is cast into the lake of fire. You see, there's a present judgment that has been made on Satan by Jesus dying on the cross. But it's connected to an ultimate day of judgment in which he will be cast aside forever. In God's sovereign purposes, he decided not to do it all at once. And although at times we question why, in the end we will worship him for his wisdom. But this judgment now. The Spirit of God is convicting us concerning judgment, concerning judgment. I want us to think about this ultimate judgment that's coming at at the day of judgment. And I want you to remember three words, three words, and then we'll see them uh, illustrated in Scripture. The judgment of God is, number one, is just. And number two, it is wrath. Meaning the judgment is an experiencing of the wrath of God. So it's just, it is wrath. And number three, it is eternal. The judgment of God is just, it is wrath, and it is eternal. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I want you to uh, look at, it's on page 1339. Today we're covering big portions of scripture, but I trust that. It will be helpful. The judgment of God is just. It is wrath. And it is eternal. Many people these days don't want to hear about the wrath of God. Many people want to emphasize the love of God in some way that's out of balance with what the scripture actually says. Nothing actually that I'm going to say right now has anything is anything contrary to the love of God. It's just that you can't say everything at one time. This truth needs to be spoken of. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I'm just going to read it this fast and make a few few uh, comments. For the wrath of God, there you go, that's the judicial response of God to sin. It's the justice of God expressing itself against the offender. It's called wrath. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. You see, the judgment of God is just. People know enough to not sin. It's known. It's evident within them. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. The judgment of God is just. The judgment of God is not God uh, losing his temper or, or being cruel. It is just. It is what is deserved. 
We look about at the world and we might not be able to see the gospel in the world, in the creation around us, but we see that there is a God. You see there in verse 20, there is one who has eternal power and there's one who has a divine nature that is clearly seen. It's one of the great myths of all of the mantra of evolution. And I'm not even trying to get into all the details of that. There's little pieces of it that are just, they're right, but they've mixed the whole thing together so that evolution is somehow the answer to everything. Evolution, when people use it just quickly, just means it's all a big chance. (laughs) It's idiocy codified by scientists. Just walk out on a summer night somewhere where there's no lights at all and look up into the sky and you know there's a God. Just look at the flowers growing up in your yard, at the animals in the forest, and you know there is a divine power. There is an eternal power and a divine nature. And you see, people will look at the light, even that much light, and then they reject it. It's not the complete light of the gospel yet, but it's that much light. It comes to them, and instead of turning then and saying, who is this divine one? They reject that light and go their own way. And right there, they're earning judgment on their own selves, and it is just. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and, the, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Then beginning in verse 24 through the end of the, end of the chapter, he just starts talking about all the sin and the unrighteous living that comes out of this rejection of the light that they had. Then you get to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. The judgment of God is coming and it is right and just. But do you suppose, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Not only did God give you light, when you turned away from that light, he was patient. He didn't just strike you down dead then. God, in his kindness, has been tolerant. He's tolerated people willingly turning away from him. Perhaps that's you this morning. You know better. You know God has pressed into your light into your life. And you've turned away from him. And he has been kind. He has tolerated this. He's given you time to turn back to him. But every day that you reject that kindness of God, you add to your own judgment. If you never turn back to him. 
5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Look at verse 8. But to those who selfishly, who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. God being indignant towards a person. His patience has run out. How awful to be the one receiving that. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress. Two different words used. Trying to describe what is it like for a person to feel the judgment of God. It is tribulation. It is distress for every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first and also of the Greek. And then there's another passage, and I ask you to turn there. It'll be the last one we look at in detail today. It's Luke chapter 16. It's on page 1243. Luke 16, beginning at verse 19. These are unpleasant passages, but they are necessary. They're just as much scripture as any other part of the Bible. If you look at the scriptures and and look at the passages in scripture that speak about the eternal judgment. And then you, you ask the question, who talked about that the most? You check me up on this and see if I'm not correct. But apparently it is Jesus. Jesus, the one we all want to talk about as the one of love, and he is, spoke the most about hell. And I would suggest that it, there's no contradiction in this at all. It's because of love that he speaks of this. But look at verse 19 now, Luke 16, 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, another word used now. We've seen different words being used to describe this eternal punishment, to describe what it's like to reach the judgment day and to be be declared guilty. We've seen before, Paul used the word distress, tribulation. Here, torment is used. Not being tormented like being tortured, but the torment within. The, 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 the anguish there. And he saw Abraham, verse 23, far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger. That's all, just the tip of his finger. I'm not asking for a, a whole glass of water, just a tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. My friend, this judgment is eternal. 
Once a person is in that state, they will never get out. There's no other chance. The chances came. The chances were spurned. This now is their end. It's described even as the agony within flames. And people argue about, is that physical flames or is that a figure of speech? You miss the whole point. (laughs) It doesn't even matter from one end. What's worse? The, the, The scripture language is trying to express the torment and the agony of what this judgment means. It's like being in in fire and not dying. That's how bad it is. That's the point. And once in, you never get out. Verse 27, he said, oh, well, then I beg you, Father. He wasn't an evangelist when he was alive, but now he wants to be one. I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have this book. They have the word of God. But if someone goes to them from the dead, uh, uh, let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even as someone rises from the dead. The chance to believe in Jesus Christ And to escape the just penalty of God on your life is now. There is none afterwards. Purgatory is a lie. It has has exactly zero support in the Bible. It is a fable made up by men. There is no chance after death. It is now. Do you sense within you perhaps a stirring? Are you one that has never actually believed in Christ, but these words now, God is using them to stir you perhaps, to bring conviction in your own life about judgment? Let me help you. Imagine with me that you're lying on your deathbed. You've reached old age. And your health has declined. And now your heart is failing. And your breath is failing. You lie in a bed completely unable to help yourself. Others attend to you. You cannot comfort yourself. You can't even dab the cold sweat off your forehead. You can't sip any water. It has to be brought to your own lips, which are parched. And you know... That death is inescapable. And there, laying on your deathbed, you know you've lived your life in vain. You've lived many years for yourself, and you have not lived one day for God. You never left the busyness of your life to quietly consider eternity and God. And sin and Jesus Christ, those things, you were too busy and distracted. They never actually settled in into your mind as being important. You've lived your whole life as if the purpose of life 
was to eat and to drink and to play and to make money and to spend money and to sleep and to die. And there you lay. There you lay. You were no closer to God on your deathbed than you were in your cradle. And death is coming. And you are not ready. And imagine with me for a moment that then you die and you're gathered up in the judgment day with the throng of all of humanity. You see, every human that ever was is assembled before the great throne of judgment. And there's one great division between the whole throng, a smaller throng, millions and millions And yet small in comparison to the side you're in, they are there and they apparently have no worry. But you and the uncountable multitude that you're standing in, you have reason to worry. Christ, the supreme and final judge upon the judgment seat is before you. You are standing in the throng that never trusted in Jesus Christ. And a voice from the throne, like the sound of mighty waters, declares you guilty. And you are ushered now in to eternal darkness, to the agony, to the distress. That's where you go. You go now. And imagine then there the torment of your own conscience. You heard the word of God, but you listened to other voices more. You were warned of sin, but you willingly enjoyed it anyway. You were told of Christ, but you didn't seek him. It was explained to you who he is, but you didn't value him. You were taught that he suffered for you, but you didn't trust him. And now it is too late. And your own conscience torments you. I could have trusted in him, but I didn't. He was offered to me. I turned him away. Oh, why did I do that? If I could just... Have another chance, but you will have no chance. It's over. And that's where you are. The spirit of God convicts the world concerning judgment. But he also convicts concerning righteousness. I skipped that over that in verse eight. It says that in righteousness and in verse 10, it says, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the father and you no longer see me. You see, at the cross, the world judged Christ as unrighteous by by hanging him there with the criminals and executing him as a criminal. They considered him to be worthy of death. But at the resurrection from the grave and his ascension into heaven, God has declared him he is the righteous one. Amen. He is who he said he is, and he succeeded in what he said he was going to do. That's what the resurrection from the dead means. That's what his ascension and reception into heaven means. He is who he said he was, and he succeeded in what he said he was going to do. 
And who he said he was and is, is the son of God, the perfect son of God. Unlike all of us, yet like all of us, for he's also the son of man. And as that perfect one, he went to the cross and on the cross, he was going to stand in for us and satisfy the justice of God and actually feel the wrath of God for the sinner. He was going to feel hell for you. He was going to take hell that had your, the part of hell that had your name on it. He took it upon himself. And then he says, now I've purchased it. You just receive it. If you will come to me and trust me. In Acts chapter 4, after Peter had healed this lame man, and there was such an uproar then, and he was being, he was being interrogated by the officials. What happened? It says this, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. Because... He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. There is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no other place. In terms of religion or way of thinking, there is no salvation except in Jesus Christ. Because he is the only one that went and settled that debt between God and you. So that the justice of God is satisfied and the love of God overflows and the sinner is forgiven. My friend, have you found that salvation in Jesus Christ? As we go on in the next three weeks, I'm going to speak more and more about him and what he's done and try to help you understand more and more about what it means to believe in him. But even now, as our time is up, I just want to ask if you in your own life are sensing within your own heart the stirring of the conviction of the Holy Spirit of sin and righteousness and judgment, call on Jesus Christ. And ask him, cast yourself on him and say, I trust you for forgiveness. I, I set aside my sin. It's you, Christ. Save me. If you save me, if you don't save me, I'm not saved. I put all of my trust in you and he will give you forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Let's stand together to pray. Father. We trust your Holy Spirit to work his work of conviction in hearts. In any heart that needs to be convicted of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Have your way, O God, we pray. And work your work in lives. And draw people to the place where they are ready and willing and do indeed cast their faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we pray this and ask it. And for those of us who you have already done this work in our lives, but even as we think of these things, Father, you're speaking to us too. 
You're speaking to us about our responsibility to tell others. You're speaking to us about our own slipping up with sin. You've reminded us how desperately evil sin is and how we must have nothing to do with it. Lord, work your will in all our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you all.